As I mentioned last week, we are going to be talking a little bit, kind of a, a little bunny trail from Revelation 15 that connects to Revelation 15 because we saw that they sang the song of Moses when they were delivered here in chapter 15. And so um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Moses here and a connection between Moses and Christ. There's a reason that we see him, I think, being brought up and that song being brought up in this book of Revelation at the moment of deliverance. And so I want to just show you how the Jews viewed Moses. It's kind of amazing how you would think that of all the Old Testament characters, Moses is, I mean, for a Jewish person who loves the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, all attributed to Moses, that Moses would be the greatest. But what we see is Abraham is lifted up. Now, I think that's mainly because Abraham was the father, and from Abraham you get Moses. But nonetheless, we often hear, we're, we're, children, of Abraham, or we're children of Abraham, right? It's not what Moses is our father. But they always attribute it to Abraham. Now, Moses, with that said, is certainly not any small character in Judaism or in Christianity. Shouldn't be anyway. Um, what they see Moses being is more a type of Christ. A type of, and when I say Christ, I mean the Mashiach, the anointed one. Yes, that is Yeshua. We know that. But as I've said before, Jesus was not the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That was not his last name. That was his title, right? Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so they saw Moses as being picture of the anointed one because it was prophesied there would be one greater than him coming. So with that in mind, we're going to just kind of show you a few things here. Moses, in our eyes and probably in Judaism, is a representation of the law. Now Joshua was the one that led them into the promised land. Moses was not allowed to. He wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land. We'll touch on that here in a little bit. But we see that, as I mentioned last week, Joshua, the one that leads them into the promised land, is going to be a picture of Jesus as well. But we see Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Joshua, Yahshua, Yeshua. It's the same name in Hebrew. So, Deuteronomy 34, 9 says, now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. So Moses is kind of this father figure. Moses is the one that lays his hand on Joshua, that gives Joshua the Holy Spirit. Joshua is the one that, that takes them to the finish line. Moses, as I said, was denied access into the promised land all because of one act of disobedience. A picture of the law. He broke the law 
and he cannot go into the promised land. Isn't that appropriate? Let me tell you, if anybody is trying to earn their way into heaven, good luck because you break one, you don't get to enter the promised land. You know, that's what Jesus says in regards to the law. He who breaks the least of these commandments, right, or you break one, every single commandment has been broken. That is enough to keep you from getting into heaven. That's why without Yeshua, Jesus, you will never get into the promised land. On your own, you can be good 99.9999999% of the time, but that little itty-bitty point that you miss is enough to keep you. Have you ever read that in the Old Testament and you go, geez, God, lighten up. I mean, all, he's been so faithful all these years. He's done everything. And now he just, you know, by the way, before he did strike the rock, and now he's doing it again this time because you said speak to the rock, and now he can't go in? I mean, wow. Yeah, that's, that's the difficulty it would be to get into heaven. That's why I say time and time again, guys, we don't obey the law in order to get into heaven. You obey the law because of a relationship you have with Jesus. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I don't remember, because you are an image bearer of God, and the law is the image of who God is. Now, Brian, what's the significance of uh, we're reading through and we're just going through numbers now and Joshua's, Moses called Joshua, Joshua. That wasn't his given name. Right. What's the, is that significant? I think so. I think the whole point that he's given that name is because just like almost all of them get a different name at some point when they're walking in faith and, and leading them into, you know, or, or a, uh, what's the word? I can't think of a, a role, a, a purpose. Um, what was it? I can't think of, uh, the word's just escaping me, but what's that? Um, maybe, I'd never, that wasn't what I was thinking of, but in a way, there is kind of an anointing with that name being given. It's the role. It's kind of like Jesus, Yeshua. I think Yeshua was around in the Old Testament. We see him, we call these theophanies in many cases where God appears in the Old Testament, but that wasn't his role. So he wasn't called Jesus back then. Sometimes he's called an angel of the Lord or you know things like that. God has many different names, uh, many different names. And those names fit the role or characteristic of who he is. And I think that that's the point here is it's the characteristic of what Joshua is doing. He is the Lord saving them, leading them into the promised land. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about here. So with Moses going back to him not being able to go into the promised land, remember he does get to go in there though. Okay, it wasn't his righteousness that took him there, though. It was God's righteousness that got him there. And we see that in Matthew chapter 17, when Yeshua goes up onto the mountain, there is this transfiguration that takes place. We don't know exactly what mountain. Uh, probably the tradition and everything has it that goes way back to Mount Tabor, which we'll show you some pictures of later. But bottom line is, Mount Tabor, he goes up there, and Moses and Elijah are the two that appear. 
We talked about that back in chapter 11 of Revelation. So he does get to go into the promised land, but not on his own righteousness. So Moses is, in a sense, a picture as well of God the Father. Joshua, Yahshua, a picture of Jesus, the Son. Now, again, these are just allegories, but I think ones that the Jews have picked up on and I think ones that the Bible points to. Um, that's why I was saying, note that it's Moses who gives the anointing to Joshua. God gave his anointing to Jesus, filled him with wisdom. Joshua is only going to do what Moses commanded and told him to do. Jesus is only going to do what God, his father, tells him to do. Well, so why did God not allow Moses to go into the promised land? Well, as I said, one, I think it's because there's a good picture to show you. It's not on account of your righteousness. You break the law once, you're doomed without a mediator, even for you, Moses. But also, I think that that was part of the role God wanted Moses to be playing even for the Jews in Israel to see in giving the law. He's known for giving the law. Joshua, as I said, a picture of Jesus. So Moses, the law, was able to bring the children of Israel only so far, just to the edge of the promised land, but not into it. Joshua, the Lord saving, which is what Joshua means, the Lord saves, had to bring them into the promised land. The law can only take you so far, and that so far isn't far enough. That's why Yeshua had to do it in our stead, so that we claim his righteousness. Now, does that mean in any way, shape, or form in the past or today that the law was then gone and taken away? No, it was an accomplishing of that law. Just because Moses didn't get to go in, Moses couldn't keep that law fully, and then Joshua takes over. Did Joshua say, okay, now we're done, we're in the promised land, so you don't have to follow the commands anymore? Not at all. They continued to do that, and it was supposed to be from their heart, ultimately. They just didn't have a power to do it. That's what the Holy Spirit is for us today. Okay, Not to fulfill it perfectly. Yeshua did that. But the Spirit empowers you to work. When we take communion, okay, what they would say, Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine, is a picture of works coming from Jesus. Okay, we are the branches, he is the vine. A branch cannot produce fruit unless they're connected to the vine. You cannot produce good works unless you are connected to the vine, having the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, I think I've beat that enough, but 
I'm hoping you're seeing this. I want to show you what the Midrash Rabbah says in regards to Moses. Now let me first tell you what this Midrash is. Rabbah simply means great. And the Midrash is simply a commentary on the Torah. So what this is, is it's a great commentary of the Torah. It would be like me taking the book of Genesis, writing a commentary on it, naming it Genesis, yesterday's answers to today's problems, <laughs> and then taking the Genesis book and my book, putting it together, and then doing that for each one, and not only my book, but others that have wrote on the book of Genesis, and putting them all together in one thing. Okay? So this is not the Word of God, it's more of a commentary on the Word of God. And here's what it says. The, he, meaning the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Mashiach, will cause a light to shine on the whole world, for it says in Isaiah 60, verse 19, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Now, the Jews saw this in an Old Testament in Isaiah here, but we see that exact same thing in Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 5. There is no light, no sun in the new heaven because the Lamb gives us its light. So they're saying that Moses is a picture of the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to cause the light to shine on the entire world. Moses caused the light to shine in our lives through the law, but this Messiah coming is going to shine a light to the world. Okay? And so, as we go through these in the, this Midrash, what you're going to see is the Jews believe that this anointed one, the one that was coming, was going to far surpass what Moses did. Everything Moses did, the anointed one, the Mashiach, was going to be way better. That's just, this is just what they say. And so I'm going to show you as we go through this what they're telling you and then showing you a New Testament verse that says the exact same thing, basically. So it goes to show you that the New Testament is accurate. It does not contradict the Old Testament and that really... Jews today would do really well to listen to the New Testament and see that it agrees with their teaching. You're going to see one reason why they don't see that, but they would do well to see that. So we're going to continue and go through a few of those here. Uh, number two, what Moses, this anointed one, is a picture of. Living water will flow from Jerusalem to heal the sick. That's because of Ezekiel 47, verses 9 and 10, which says, So where the river flows, everything will live. Well, we go to the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verses 1 and 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. It's agreeing with Midrash. It's agreeing with uh, Ezekiel 47. Number three, trees will bear fruit monthly for healing. 
Because Ezekiel 47 verse 12 says, Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on banks, both banks of the river. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. The tree of life is basically also mentioned here in that case. But this is what Midrash is saying. Revelation 22 agrees. It says on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Boy, you would think a Jew would grab onto this and go, wow, this is exactly what we've been teaching. But let me tell you, most Jews, and by Jews tonight, I'm referring to Judaism, those who have not accepted Yeshua as their Messiah. Most have not even read the book of Revelation. They don't know what's in it. And there's a reason they haven't read it. We'll get to that. Number four, ruined cities will be rebuilt. This is what the Messiah is going to do, the anointed one. Even Sodom and Gomorrah, for Ezekiel 16.55 states, and your sister Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before. Revelation 21.5 also says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. A restoration of this fallen earth. Number five, Jerusalem will be rebuilt with sapphire. As Isaiah 54 verse 11 tells us, O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you, up with, build you with stones of turquoise, your foundation with sapphires. Sounds like Revelation 21 verses 15 and following. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Nothing new. Just whether you believe it or not, is this New Testament reliable? But keep in mind what I'm reading here in the Midrash. This is the Jewish understanding of what the Messiah, even though they didn't recognize Yeshua was that person, they're saying this is what that person is supposed to do. These are all prophecies saying what he's going to do. Number six, the lion and the lamb will graze together. Isaiah 11, verse 7. Okay, well, we see that kind of peace in Revelation later. Number seven says, God will make a covenant with the animals, as we read in Hosea 2, verse 18. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. So a restoration of even animals from the curse. Although Revelation doesn't specifically tell us that the lion and the lamb are going to be together, we do see a restoration and the Old Testament clearly telling us that, both in Hosea and Isaiah. We also do see, though, in Romans telling us this, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Why? Because of the curse. Side note, shouldn't go here, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
I was uh, talking to Mark yesterday a little bit about this, but you know, uh, over Sukkot, I believe I talked about supernatural selection. And um, Randy Galuza had a great article in ICR that kind of was talking about that again here the last couple of weeks. And um, along those lines, this is just making me think of that, that for years, creationists have been teaching it wrong. Evolutionists have been wrong too, but we've both been wrong. We've been saying that these animals, as you remember, if you were there, I showed you a blind cave fish. You stake, take it out of the dark water, stick it into the light, and in 30 days, the coloring, the pigmentation all comes back on these blind cave fish. For years, creationists have been saying, well, this is a result of the curse. Okay, when Jesus comes back, it's all going to be restored, all that. And so, yes, these are mutations, negative accidents, right? And because of those accidents, but we just said, but mutations never produce new information. That was the creationist response to the evolutionary story of mutations over millions of years take things away. We were just saying, okay, yes, we agree, just not millions of years, but we'll keep the mutation thing, right? Well, that's not true. We, we have discovered now, because of genetics, we were both wrong. It isn't the mutation. Do we see mutations in a result of the curse? Absolutely. But what we see is the power of God in pre-programmed genetic information so that on your DNA, you've got these parts that are switched on and switched off so that this thing can go back and forth in a predictable way, as I said, repeatably, and in some cases even reversible. And I showed you many examples of fish that can change in 24 hours, or snakes, or uh, rabbits, to mice, to you name it, in just months, days, Short periods of time, they change. wasn't because of the curse. It was because of God's power and dominion that these things change. So can you see how we were wrong? We, we, were, we were saying, well, yeah, God was almost this great watchmaker, and yep, the curse came and boom, screwed everything up, and now it's just all wearing out, and we just have to sit back and wait until it falls apart. We weren't letting God remain on his throne and say, he is powerful, he has all dominion, he is awesome. And we were using words like accidents and mutations and whatnot. Well, any engineer, which God is, never makes things with accidental processes. It's purposeful, isn't it? And so we took away God's power and purpose in his creation in teaching that. Yes, there is a curse, but that's not why these animals adapt. That's a good thing because of God's purpose. But nonetheless, there will be a restoration of the curse. Animals die now. The lion is going to lamb together. There's death that goes on. There was no death before the fall, and there will be no death when the Messiah comes back to reign. Number eight. Check one thing here, yeah. 
There will be no more weeping. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more, says Isaiah 65, verse 19. Yet Revelation 21 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I know Jamie Walden talks about this a lot. We always talk about this in heaven, but I want you to understand something. There will be, for a short time, mourning. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I've always looked at that as there will be no crying, ever. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying. Well, I agree, so don't get too scared here yet. I agree, but that is way back in chapter 21, after the Lord comes back, after it seems the millennial reign and everything is done. Prior to that, we have verses that prophesy, like Zechariah, they will look on me, the one whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns from an only child. They will grieve for him, grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. When the Lord first comes back, before it's all made new, there will be mourning, there will be sorrow, there will be repentance, there's going to be, what did we do? And he's going to wipe that away. And he's going to say, I forgive you to those who recognize him. Honestly, guys, I even think when the, if the Lord would come back right here today, I don't think that my heart would just be filled with joy. I also think I would be filled with fear, shame, Things that you're not going to have in chapter 21. But I think initially, we will be overcome by the weight of how we have failed even as Christians here. But he will wipe that away and say, I paid for it. Just like Moses cried out and wept and basically begged God, please let me go in. And he says, no, enough. But he wiped those away. He brought them into the promised land later. That's the picture we're seeing. Number nine, there will be no more death since Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, or shows us he will swallow up death forever. Revelation 21.4 says there will be no longer any death. Also 1 Corinthians 15 and so on as well. So this is the kind of thing that we see the Messiah is supposed to do, according to Judaism. Finally, number 10, there will be no longer any sighing, crying, or sorrow, but everyone will be rejoicing. Isaiah 35, verse 10 says, The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I love that everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. I mean, this isn't something you're going to have to learn to do. You will be overcome, overtaken by joy. Have you ever experienced a time where you, you've been so filled with joy that you just can't even really control yourself? You're just overtaken by it? 
That's what it says is supposed to happen, and that is what Moses is a picture of. This is what they see, and they connect every one of these to their Messiah that is supposed to be coming. They just don't realize he came once already as the suffering servant. And he hasn't fulfilled all of these yet because he hasn't come the second time as, you know, the son of David. He's come as Mashiach ben Yosef, but not Mashiach ben David. So, they say this here, Moses was an intercessor as was Jesus. This is more now not from the Torah here. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. That's what Moses did, isn't it? During the days of Moses on earth, what did he do? He offered up prayers and petitions, loud cries and tears to the one who could not only save him, but save Israel from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Moses was the most humble man that ever lived, the Bible says, the book of Numbers. He was submissive to God. And this is exactly what Moses did. And now the Bible is telling us, making a connection here. So now going back to what the rabbis taught, Rabbi Simlai taught, why did Moses, our teacher, long to enter the land of Israel? Was it because he wanted to eat of its fruit or satiate himself with its produce? No, this is what Moses said. There are many commandments given to Israel which can only be fulfilled in the land. I want to enter the land so that they might all be fulfilled through me. Now that is an interesting perspective on Moses longing to get into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 23 is where we see Moses not getting to go into the promised land. And here's what it said. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord. He was begging God, please let me go in to the promised land. And then finally God says, enough, stop it. The question is, why was he so upset? Now that may not seem like any question at all. That might seem like a really stupid question. Like, duh. But what this rabbi is saying is you're wrong. The most obvious answer is not the answer. I mean, plain logic would tell us that Moses wanted the comforts of the promised land, the land of milk and honey, just as was promised. That, that's what I want. I want heaven. Right? I mean, that makes sense to me because that's how I think. But I'm not the most humble man that ever lived. I would suspect that most of us sitting here today want to die to get to heaven simply because then we're done with this. I get the gold streets. I get, you know, no more pain. I don't have to put up with this anymore. I don't have to put up with that anymore. Right? I mean, that 
seems to be, I would say, what most people would think, at least in part. Some might say, well, because I want to be with Jesus, and I'm sure that's probably true. But I wonder sometimes if getting out of here is more of the reason than it is to be with Jesus. Sometimes. And we kind of, I think, sometimes attach our feelings and our emotions to what Moses must have thought. But I think Moses was better than us. Better than me, for sure. I think there may be more to this when we think about Moses, if he was indeed a type of Christ that God wanted us to see here spiritually. That he was doing and thinking more spiritually than he was in the flesh. I mean, remember, we're talking about a guy whose enemy, the people who have been, you know, picking on him, complaining about him, and hating him. He goes up to the mountain, Moses does, and God says, you know what? I'm going to wipe them out. Okay? These people who have been nothing but a thorn in your flesh, a pain in your butt, I'm going to do away with them. And God say, or Moses says, no, 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 no. Blot me out of the book of life. I'll die in their place. Another Christ figure moment. I mean, why? We've talked about this before, but I'd have been the one, thank you finally, Lord. <clears throat> Wipe them out, now take me in. Because God even says, I will take you to the land. I'm going to wipe them out and take you to heaven. You know, in quotes there. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. All right. I've been waiting for this. But no, not Moses. That ought to tell you right there, he was not pleading to go into the promised land because he was excited about what the land had to offer it. There was something deeper there. Basically, what the Talmud discusses here is that Moses wanted to lead them in the commandments of God. It wasn't so that I can be the one to do it, but that through me, because so, if they go in without me, they're not going to keep the commandments. It's the same thing as him pleading before the Lord and not wipe them out. And yep, or the same thing as I did not come to fulfill, or I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, is what Yeshua says. And here Moses is basically saying the same thing, that through me, the commandments will be kept. How are the commandments kept today in our lives? Through Yeshua. And so, ultimately, that's where it's going to go. It seems like Moses is sharing messianic motives here. This is going to support that even more. Therefore, Jesus could have come to no other place on earth but the promised land to fulfill his role because Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill them. That verse is in essence exactly what they're saying here. Not that Moses had a selfish motive, but that he was, he was willing and wanted to help the people. And that's what Yeshua did. 
Now again, we can talk about just like that, what did it mean through me? How we have a natural tendency to read that in kind of a fleshly pride way. We have a natural tendency to read this in a a fleshly way as well. Well, Jesus came and he fulfilled it for us. That means we don't have to do it anymore. It's done. It's over. Well, what a contradiction. What a contradiction that makes to the rest of the New Testament, to the entire lives of the disciples, to the entire ministry of Jesus. We were talking about this yesterday too in regards to you know, the, the clean and unclean and Peter's vision, how everybody says, well, that's saying now you can eat anything you want because there were pigs, you know, pigs in a blanket coming down. Well, no, that was about Gentiles, okay? But we read this and we say, Peter, when this happens, what is Peter's response? No, Lord, I've never let any unclean thing touch my lips. If Jesus had taught that, if Jesus says, well, I fulfilled it for you, you're done, Peter would have said, all right, where's the ketchup and mustard? But he doesn't. Yeah, I see some wheels turning. Well, he hadn't died yet, so he hadn't fulfilled it yet. Not at this point when he says this, but when Peter, when this happens with Peter, he has died. So Peter, having walked with Jesus, would have known what Jesus taught. And now we're saying all of a sudden, Peter has this revelation that everything Jesus did, how he lived his life, everything is different now well as an example you have to remember that as an example for a gentile they were filthy unclean i won't even step into their house and so he had to use something that peter was culturally spiritually aware of they were considered both unclean But the point being is, is we can read this to say that Jesus fulfilled the law and that way it's now done. We can, you know, throw that piece of paper away. Done. Or you could read it as something that maybe I did not come to abolish it, but to do it for you. You could read it, I did not come to abolish it, but to do it in the right way. You could read it, I did not come to abolish it, but to bring them into a final role that they were intended to be, like to fulfill them righteously. I mean, there's a, what does this mean even? Go ahead, Julia. Yeah, not, it doesn't mean to do away with. It is to complete, to fill. It's just like when I got married, my wife completes me. Okay. Now, does that mean, all right, well, we're done with marriage. She completed me. I'm now, no, no, she's still there. And that is what is happening here. That is the Jewish perspective of what Moses was supposed to do. Moses was supposed to take them into the promised land to complete him, to complete the people, to, so that they might keep the commandments through me, that I'll be there to help them. And that's exactly what Yeshua does. He is there to help you, to be the guide, to take away uh, sins. 
Yeah, when Yeshua comes, again, and that's why, as you're going to see a verse coming up here in you know, Hebrews, that, or, it says that there will be one like me, Moses said this, a prophet greater than me. And then Hebrews refers to that. So there couldn't be another Moses until Yeshua. And the very fact there was no mediator until Yeshua is a good reason to tell you, Yeshua is this anointed one you guys are looking for. Because that's what he's doing. The very same things Moses did, being that mediator. So I think that's why there's a reason that Moses is the one appearing here mentioned in Revelation. We read here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Moses said, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Moses didn't give them the law so that he was magnified. It was for the benefit of the people. We are to let our light shine so that those around us see God. As I mentioned a week or two ago, we are the image. They should see God clearly through us. The same truth that Moses taught here in Deuteronomy is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, keeping the commandments of God has nothing to do with salvation. Every time people see that, oh yes, I want to obey the God, I want, I, I want to keep the Sabbath, it's like, oh, legalism. No, how about being a light? How about it, it, it's being a light to the world? How about because it's a righteous decree that brings joy into my life and delight, just like it was promised to do. Can I, can I not do that? Or are you going to just kind of beat me up with the words like legalism and, you know, whatever? It's our understanding of what the law is that's the problem, not the law. If Moses taught decrees and laws so that they could follow them in the promised land, and we know the promised land is a picture of heaven, does it not stand to reason that Jesus taught us the law so that in heaven we will carry them out? Yeah. No wonder we read in Zechariah and other places that you know, tabernacles is going to be celebrated. Passover is going to be celebrated in the, you know, the millennial reign. Unless, of course, Jesus already did that, so we're now done with it. Right? No, not at all, but that's what we're being taught. Um, there was one thing I was going to mention here, if I can find it again.
I, it, it left me. So, But anyway, I think that's an important point for us to just think about. The whole pattern even says the law is a blessing for us even to this day. And Moses is saying, I want them to keep these in the promised land through me. When you get to heaven, I can guarantee you something. You will be keeping the commandments of God through Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. Okay? Yeshua is the one that brings all of this about to fulfillment. He never came to abolish it. I want to fulfill it. I want to bring it to its completion in heaven even. That's what he wants. And that's what Moses, it seemed, wanted. Like I say, it doesn't directly tell us in Scripture what he was thinking. All we know is that he pleaded. We know that he wanted to, you know, teach them the law. And we know that he's a humble man, not looking out for himself, but always concerned for the people enough that he was willing to go to hell to save them. I don't think all of a sudden when it came time to enter the promised land, it's like, I don't care about them. I just want to go in. I want to see it. There was more to it. I don't know. You know, this, this Jewish midrash, all I know is that they were thousands of years closer to these events than you and I were. I think they're right. I think they had it. I think that that's exactly probably what Moses was thinking. The Talmud continues here and it says this, Why do you desire to enter the land and fulfill the commandments? Is it so that you might receive the reward for keeping the commandments? Boy, that almost sounds like a question somebody in churches today might ask you. Why, why do you desire to keep the commandments? Why, why, are, you, why are you trying to do the Sabbath? Are, are you, you know, trying to get a reward? I will account it as if you performed them all. By the way, this is God speaking. This is what they're saying God said to Moses. Isn't that interesting? Kind of also shows you that idea of fulfillment. You see, when we stand before the Lord in heaven, is he going to say, oh, I see you did a good job. You kept the Sabbath, but do you know thou shalt not lie? Do you remember that time? And there's probably going to be a list a mile long, but you know. No, he says, you break one, you break them all. You're in trouble if that's how it is. But he says, I will account it as if you performed them all. I'm going to account it as if someone, even though I know you didn't, I'm going to account you as if you did. Why? Because I see the blood of Jesus on you. How do you overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, Revelation says. You see, that's our righteousness. And yet this is what the Talmud is saying. It sounds like Yeshua. It goes on to use a proof text to identify Moses as this suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now this is where it's going to be right, but it's also going to go south a little bit. It's in smaller print, so I could just fit everything 
on this. I know it's a lot of words on this one slide, but it goes on to say, we know that Isaiah 53 speaks of, well, we, this is me right saying, we know Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus and not Moses. However, since Moses so perfectly prefigures Christ, the imagery works both ways if you read in this chapter here. The Talmud now is going to continue. Now, this is the word of the Talmud, not me. And it considers to be God's word to, be, uh, to Moses. He says, I will account it as if you performed the whole Torah as it is written. In Isaiah 53, 12, I will allot, with him, or allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Well, that sounds exactly like Yeshua, but it does sound like Moses, doesn't it? He was numbered with the transgressors. No, Lord, don't wipe them out. All, uh, count it on me. Put it on me. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Because Moses surrendered himself to die, as he said in Exodus 32, 32, forgive Israel's sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And Moses was numbered with the transgressors because he was numbered with the generation who were condemned to die in the wilderness. Yet he himself bore the sin of many because he made atonement for Israel when they made the golden calf. And Moses interceded for the transgressor because he begged for mercy on behalf of the sinners in Israel that they should turn and repent. I get why they see Isaiah 53 as Moses. They know it's there and they do, but it's not read in their synagogues typically. So there is commentary on it. It is in the Talmud. It's in their Bibles. They just, it, they just skip it. It's kind of like growing up in the Lutheran church. We just never had a sermon on Revelation. <laughs> it's in the Bible. It's just not going to be talked about. So. so very fascinating. Okay, It basically, as I'm sure you have picked up here, is with this imagined conversation between God and Moses that God replies to Moses with the words of Isaiah 53. God saying, this is you. So, again, amazing similarities. And we even see that God's answer to Moses' request to enter the promised land, stated in Deuteronomy 3.26, where it says, but because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That's what Moses is saying to the people. Because of you, God was angry with me. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's right out of Deuteronomy. So Moses himself says that God's wrath was upon him because of the Israelites. Well, let me tell you something. The wrath of God was on Yeshua because of us. So, therefore, the Jews say Moses offered to lay down his life and be blotted out of the book, just like Scripture says. And notice it was voluntarily that Moses was willing to do that. So, he took their punishment even though he had not committed their sin. The context of Moses' life in the Scriptures 
absolutely seem to support this Jewish understanding that Moses wanted to enter the promised land to obey the commands for Israel. And I think that's what Yeshua did as well. That is one of the reasons he came to this earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does it just say just to die on the cross? No. That's what we focus on purely. But I also think it was to teach us his ways. And that is why so many New Testament verses, almost the entire book of John, right? Uh, first, second, and third John, James, and so many other talk about if you love me, do. If you say you love me and you do not, then you don't. Over and over and over. It seems like Jesus came to teach the law of God. Not for salvation, but because I know you guys are going to screw it up. I'm here to do it for you. I'm here to show you how to do it. I'm going to empower you to do it. And by the way, when you don't do it, I will account to you as if you kept them all. In the book of Revelation, there is evidence that we will be following God's commands. Right? Who does the devil go after? Those who keep the commandments of God. And I mean, so many times in the book of Revelation, we've seen obedience being talked about. This isn't the, the typical thing we're hearing in churches today, though. Acts chapter 3. Verse 22 through 23, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Wait a minute. In the New Testament, Moses even said, Hey, God one day is going to raise somebody up like me. There's only one guy, as I said, that fits that. Yeshua, Hamashiach. Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. And he says, you must listen to everything he tells you. If you don't listen, he's going to cut you off. Hebrews 3.3, 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. That's what he's referring to here. Could one say, perhaps, that the Jews are right? And that Isaiah chapter 53 was only about Moses? No. Could they say it's about Moses? Yes. Only about Moses? No. Because even here, there's going to be one like Moses, one greater than Moses. That's what Isaiah is really talking about. Yeah, Moses can fit, but it's talking about Yeshua. And Hebrews is quoting the Torah, showing that Yeshua is the guy that you've been looking for. Let me tell you, the Jews knew all those, you know, those 10 things we went through earlier. They knew those. The author of Hebrews is saying, guys, don't you see? There's one greater than Moses. It was him. It was Yeshua, the one that we, we put on the cross. Moses was in the office of a priesthood before he anointed Aaron as priest. He was the one that anointed Aaron. Though many view Moses as only a prophet, we actually see him being a priest. We even see him being a king. He is a king, a prophet, and a priest, just as Yeshua was. Hebrews 
here then shows us that Moses was faithful in the house of God, yet Jesus was the firstborn son over the house of God. So it only stands to reason as well then that one like Moses, you know, Jesus, the life of Jesus is going to reflect a pattern that Moses lived out himself. And it does. Deuteronomy 13.5 Moses being a prophet, a priest, and a king. A prophet, it says, a true prophet will not counsel against the commandments of God. Moses ever do that? Never. Not once. You think Yeshua ever did that? Not a chance. Although, many teach that, oh yeah, Jesus said the law of God, His Father, is done. Show me a scripture verse. Never. He always says, no, this isn't for salvation. If you think you're doing that for salvation, you're in trouble. Deuteronomy 18.21, that prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached a rebellion against the Lord your God. The rest in Deuteronomy 13, it also kind of talks about these things as well, where he says if a prophet or a dreamer appears among you and he announces to you a miraculous sign and says, you know, let us worship other gods, gods you have not known, and if what he says comes true, don't follow him, don't worship him, don't, don't believe him. You see... A true prophet of God, and if Jesus is a true prophet of God, as Moses was, the one thing he cannot do is counsel against the commandments. Cannot. Jesus told us that we would recognize false prophets even. How? By their fruit in Matthew 7. What is their fruit? Transgression of the law. Sin. What is sin? Lawlessness, John tells us. Sin is lawlessness. So bad fruit is lawlessness. The Antichrist, a man of lawlessness. Jesus, not a man of lawlessness. Matthew 7 said this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These guys are going to church. They're, they're, they're saying the amens. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. All these people who cast out demons, perform miracles, sing alleluia, but are lawless, God says, I don't know you. So, clearly, signs and wonders are not a good enough test of a true prophet. You have to test them against Torah. Test them against the Word of God. Crazy thing is, Judaism has tried to test Yeshua. Is this the Messiah? And they have accounted him as a false prophet. Well, shouldn't it be pretty easily determined by placing him, Yeshua, against Torah? Show me in Torah once that he breaks the law. You can't. Oh, I know. Some people try and say, well, he did this. Right? Not once does he ever break Torah. He only breaks man-made laws. 
We've talked about this many times, but just to remind you, when he's healing on the Sabbath, when the disciples are plucking grain or any of these things, there is nothing in Torah, the law, the commandments, that say you can't do that. Those were the Pharisees who had added to the law saying you could not do that. Those are the only things Jesus breaks are man-made rules. Not once does he break the law. If a true test of a prophet is, hey, test him against Torah, and Judaism does that, if you have a proper understanding of Jesus' ministry, he stands as one like Moses. Unless, of course, you make him the Gentile Jesus that we've made him. The one that breaks Torah, that says you eat anything you want, you say anything you want, do whatever, because, hey, you're free in Christ. No wonder a Jew would say, that's not the Messiah. When we have been teaching a Gentile Jesus that when you measure it according to the very Torah of how to know if one is true or not, clearly is not. No wonder they won't believe. You know, the church says this is what Jesus did. He, he broke Torah. That would make him a false prophet. I mean, if we're going to say, hey, Jesus taught Peter to eat pork and, and to, to you know, worship on Easter and pagan holidays, if we say Jesus, you know, um, his covenant with Israel was broken and now the church has replaced Israel. He's angry with you and he's cast you away. If we're going to say, oh, the law, it's all gone. Jesus came, he did that, and now we're done with it. Because that's why he did it, so that you could kind of fulfill it once, and now, oh, I guess that one's done, so now we don't need it anymore. Somebody finally did it. That's the Jesus that we teach. Well, then, yeah, he's not the Messiah, folks. Can't be. According to the Bible, he can't be the Messiah. No wonder the Jews will not accept him. That's a pretty heavy thing for us to think about and especially to repent of because how many Jews have not believed in Yeshua because of what we have taught who Yeshua is? That he's not one like Moses. So think about that. Because I think it's pretty easy to determine by placing Yeshua against Torah to see whether or not he is who he said he is. So I'm going to leave that, and you, you have to answer that question yourself. Who, who do you see Jesus is? Kind of maybe that question that he asked Peter. You know, who do the people say I am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. But who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? Is he going to be one who's going to hold up to Torah, to the entire scripture. Is he Torah? Absolutely. Going back to the chosen, when that old uproar happened, when Jesus says, I am the law of Moses. You're darn right he is. Jesus is the word of God that became flesh. And the word of God is the law of Moses as well as the, law of the, the word of the prophets and every bit else. That's who Jesus is. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you, Yeshua, for being 
greater than Moses. Thank you for leading us to the promised land. Thank you that you will account it as if we have accomplished it all when it comes to the law because of you. Thank you that it does not depend on my, on my own strength, my own power, but that it is your doing, your work, your righteousness, your mercy, your grace, your everything. Lord, I, I see Moses and Joshua, and I see that the law could not get us into the promised land, that somebody had to go in and lead us there. And I thank you that you are that one, that you are Yahshua. And we believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you are the one greater than Moses. We believe that you are the Son of God. And we believe that you and you alone have the power to forgive sins. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving mine. In Jesus' name, the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen.